0: And in the first rooms that I was in of people who are dying, I was like, wow, I just said all of the same things that I say at a birth. Just breathe. Mm. It's okay. Let's just sit here and be with it. It's the same feelings in my body. And I what I what I have often said when I'm teaching death work is that I feel like I got my training in midwifery school. Not the clinical stuff. I'm mm. not taking blood pressures, you know, or suturing, but. The presence that I bring into the room where there's death and grief, is the same presence that I bring to the birth room.
1: Hi, my name is Augustine Colebrook, and I'm the principal at Midwifery Wisdom Collective. I speak on this podcast about big picture, political issues, and the future of our profession. Hey y'all, I am Jamara and I'm a midwife. I'm also a birth justice activist. And this season, I am looking forward to sharing stories of Black midwives and the communities they serve.
0: Hello, beloved birth community. I'm Angela Love, nurse midwife since 2004, preceptor, and mother. I have a home birth practice called Midwife Love and a national telehealth practice called Midwife Rx. My mission is to keep birth choices available and to educate the next generation of midwives for our daughters and grandchildren. Matriarchy now. I'm Layla Wyatt. I get to share with you the voices of student midwives from across the country and beyond. This season, we focus on those students who just graduated, are about to sit for the NARM, Or did yesterday, and we get tips and tricks for you for what happens at the end of the student midwife journey.
1: Hi, Danny. Nice to meet you. Hi. Digitally. Totally. (laughs) Yeah. Well, here we are. Well, thank you for agreeing to be a guest here with us at Midwifery Wisdom. We're so excited to hear everything you have to say. I know that you're a wealth of of knowledge and wisdom. You've got a retreat coming up and all kinds of goodies, but let's start with um, your history and your introduction. Will you tell us a little bit about where you came from, where you're going, who you are, where you are, all those things?
0: I would love to tell you those things. So my journey started with midwifery since I was 14 years old. I knew I wanted plants herbal medicine and I didn't know that was my my first sort of plug into the midwifery world was just knowing that I wanted to work with herbal medicine but not feeling like I wanted to be with sick people and I didn't know like how those things connected um and I had an experience helping a friend who was having a miscarriage um I was 18 and we were hiking and she started bleeding and Wow. We just sat together and it just felt really right and really peaceful. And I felt really confident. And at the end of it, she looked at me and she said, you should be a midwife. And I was like, what's that? I didn't like, I knew that from like wow. books as a child, but I didn't know that midwife was a thing wow. that you could do. Um, right. And that's pretty much all I've done ever since. <laughs> um, I went mm-hmm. to Maternidad La Luz in, wow. El Paso in the wow. 90s. And, um,
1: I know that that scene, yeah,
0: that's a pretty great scene. It was wild back then. Um, you know, took the NARM, had a bunch of my own kids and then, um, started practicing in Arizona, 2008. And I've just been here ever since doing home birth out of hospital birth. Um, sometimes a lot, sometimes a little. And then it happened where I attended my first stillbirth as the provider, you know, that had happened in school, but it was the first time that I was the the one in charge, you know, I'm using air quotes and there wasn't a preceptor midwife there that was like, I could be like, Mm -hmm. okay, you deal with it. It was my turn to deal Mm -hmm. with it. And I remember being with this mama and listening for heart tones. And I wasn't listening anymore. I was listening to find my words of what the heck I was gonna say. And I felt not prepared. I was prepared medically and legally, like I knew what I needed to do. But I think I identified as a midwife to my community, like that I was going to show up in birth and death and marriages and, you know, to honor the young women and I saw myself that way, even though I was a really young midwife at the time. Um, and so, it was, you know, that's a whole story of really my journey into being a midwife who also educates about death, um, because I made so many mistakes, Augustine trying to do a good job for that family, trying to protect them from what was going on, thinking that that was the role that we played as a friend was to protect our friends from pain. And I didn't know any better. Um, yeah, and so I made a lot of mistakes and that's okay because um, I've learned from them and they've propelled me forward. Like, Like for example, I remember trying to get a brigade of people to go to their house and hide all the baby stuff so that when they came back from the hospital, they wouldn't have to deal with it. Like such an, a natural impulse in me of caring. And now, you know, 14 years later, I know the folly in that. Um, so yeah, so where I am now is I've spent some time um, running a national nonprofit that educates about end of life specifically a family's right to care for their own loved one after death. Um, When I was in the hospital with a family who had that stillbirth, I had this overwhelming sensation that they needed to bring the baby's body home. And I was like, what? Is that sane? Is that legal? Is that safe? I've never heard of that before, but it was this, but I felt it. And then I came to find out that there's a whole national movement to really remind people that spending time with the body of the deceased is really important. So I've really dedicated my life to both things, to making sure that people know that that's possible and also having home births. Yeah. Mm. How amazing. What an intersectionality
1: of of multiple knowledge bases and experiences. Um, And I love that you've Spend time at this national organization.
0: Uh, you, is it okay if you share the name and how people mm-hmm. can find out more? Definitely. So the organization calls the National Home Funeral Alliance. Um, and their mission is to um, educate families and communities about their right to care for their own loved ones after death. Um, the website is an amazing mm-hmm. resource. Um, to connect mm-hmm. with how to interpret the laws. Um, and really what it does is it, it empowers folks to understand the language in the law that allows people to act as their own funeral director. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, and so it's, um, it's a great resource. There's lots of local organizations and in individual states here, here in the States and also mm-hmm. um, like in the UK and it, all over Europe. There's a lot of, of motion in that movement as well.
1: Wow. Yeah. Well, so your first, um, you know, inspiration to learn or understand more about this was, was that stillbirth. Um, mm-hmm. did you go on and become a resource for folks, um, in your community who were, were holding home funerals or taking their body, loved one's bodies home or, yeah. um, have you mostly stayed at the, at the national level or have
0: you served in your community as well? That's really interesting. So my first entrance into the work became the National Organization. I had a friend who was on the board um, and mm-hmm. she was the person I found who was like, "No, you can't do that. You can't take bodies home." It's mm-hmm. amazing. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I got a lot of my personal education by serving on the board of directors, but it was there was an element of it that was really unsatisfying for me because my heart is in community. And mm-hmm. so- It's a little removed. Yeah, mm. and, and there's something about, mm. specifically something mm. like death care that is so individual to someone's family culture, to someone's culture of origin, and really to the community that they live in. And so on a national level, we were able yeah. to say, this is what's possible, but really the work is done in the grassroots, is done person to person. And so I really left working on the national front to start my own local organization here in Arizona that's called Arizona Community Death Care. And so we've just taken really the work of the national umbrella and made it super specific to the Arizona laws, and then trying to create little bubbles of smaller groups working together to really do the work of supporting folks who are going through end of life and wanting to meet it without the loneliness, without the isolation, um, without having to be your own advocate all the time, all of those things that can be really exhausting when you're trying to grieve and to grieve well. Um, So yeah, I've really pulled myself out of the national world so that I can work as locally as possible. What I've learned as a midwife. That's awesome. Yeah. You know, it's really really beautiful. I bet your community is getting so much. Mm -hmm. And, And it's, it's manifested, you know, for me, the direct line in was always the home funeral piece was the spending time with bodies piece, the slowing down the way that it supports the nervous system to integrate the new reality and grieve well. But it's become so many other things it's become you know single folks who have cancer and people are plugged in and so there's rides to chemo there's meal trains there's folks to come and like be with you after surgery and so it doesn't all have to fall on one person like this idea of community death care has become more than just being about death but really about just supporting people through transitions and hard times.
1: Yeah. Wow, amazing, midwifery for all stages. Well, so um, the, the, our listeners might be familiar with two terms that kind of get used in this world, um, deaf midwives and death doulas. Can you tell us um, how you feel about those titles and where they fit in
0: and into this landscape? Definitely. So, so um, I know there has been controversy of deaf midwives using the term midwife. There was um, a lawsuit, I believe, in Canada some years ago. Um, there are so many levels. To me, for myself, for my work, I love the idea of full-spectrum care and My entry to midwifery was so much about wanting to be that full spectrum midwife to show up and do well care and welcome in the young women into their moon time and and show up for death. And I understand that that's not right for everybody's midwifery. Um, Death midwifery and death doulas are not medical providers in the way that midwives are responsible for healthcare, um, so I know that the language gets really tricky. Mm-hmm. Um, oftentimes, midwives yeah. and doulas can, on the death side are more vulnerable. It's a little muddy, right? Yeah, it can be yeah. really muddy, <laughs> um, especially when we're when we're viewing it yeah. from a cap- from a capitalist model of like trying to you know like define everybody's role and make sure everybody stays in their wheelhouse mm-hmm. and gets compensated properly. Those are really important questions from that mindset. And to me, less important from a community mindset. Like I always tell people when there's when there's a death, like people just show up based on their skill set and based on their comfort level. And in my experience, the midwives, the birth midwives, are usually also the ones who are comfortable to show up and wash the body of, of you know, the grandfather who died in at 101 years old, because we're used to being in those places where there's fluids and smells and just the the rawness of life. And to me, that's where the connection comes together. And those are the spaces that I'm really interested in cultivating. Um, you mentioned the work, the workshop, and retreat. So, yeah, Midway's,
1: yeah, midwives work on in the threshold, right? Between. Exactly the worlds. And so it would make sense that we can easily, um, come there for folks transiting the veil, the other direction. Um, yeah, it's such an interesting thing. I, I really appreciate you making the distinction that the death doula or death midwife title is a non-clinical title. And I think that's a really important, um, and so if we were to then go into the clinical aspects of death care, end of life care, um, sometimes it's an oncologist, sometimes it's hospice, sometimes it's a palliative care physician,
0: right? Who else exactly. participates in the clinical roles? I think you've got it. I mean, hospice would be okay. you know nurses, nurse practitioners, um, palliative care folks, exactly the people that you've mentioned those, you know, and, and, and a lot of times if someone's dying on hospice, a lot of the medical aspect is taken away, you know, and we're really just doing pain management. Um, right. And so a deaf midwife or a deaf doula is really showing up to do more emotional and spiritual support, logistical support for the family, helping to create ceremony and ritual And again, just like at birth, sometimes a doula's only job is to sit there and shake their head and say, yep, this is normal. Yep, you're afraid, but this is okay. This is what this looks like. And in the first rooms that I was in of people who are dying, I was like, wow, I just said all of the same things that I say at a birth. Just breathe. It's okay. Let's just sit here and be with it. It's the same feelings in my body. And I, what I, what I have often said when I'm teaching death work is that I feel like I got my training in midwifery school, not the clinical stuff. I'm Mm. not taking blood pressures, you know, or suturing, but the presence that I bring into the room where there's death and grief is the same presence that I bring to the birth room. Wow. Wow. Well, so let's
1: extrapolate now for our listeners and anyone who's listening and wants to know more or wants to go deeper or has been to their first, um, you know, unexpected perinatal loss. And is like, gosh, what do I need to know? How do I need to do this better? Where should they start? What do you recommend? What are some tips?
0: Yeah. One of the first things For me, there's two avenues in this, right? One avenue has so much to do with the way that we companion someone through their grief. Trusting that it can get ugly, that it can be uncomfortable, that there's nothing to change or fix, that grief can be loud, it can be dark, it can be scary. You can worry if this person's ever gonna come around and wanna be alive again. And these are the surviving members. The surviving members. And so, how do you be a companion to those survivors and not try to tell them everything's going to be okay or they're in a better place? But really, and just like birth, like if it was your first birth, you might be like, whoa, they're making lots of noises. How do I trust that there's an end to this and it's going to be okay? But then you go to 300 births and you're like, oh, yeah, this is what this looks like. And then the other thing happens. And the baby comes and everything's fine. And there's a similarity with grief where you you know that that it gets darker and that it gets deeper. And that if you don't try to fix it, it has a cycle that it moves through and people get changed. Mm -hmm. And so there's a way that I think as midwives who might end up in that room, that we cultivate a trust of the grief process of allowing the misery, of allowing the darkness, of finding a way to be comfortable in those spaces and just draw it out, draw it out rather than quiet it, just like we Mm. might do at a birth. So really spending some time thinking about how might I move differently in that space with the confidence. The other piece for me really is how we facilitate families to get to spend more time with the body of the baby who died. The thing that I grapple with the most that I love to talk to midwives about, because I think everybody has a different opinion is how do we bring it up? Because you can't, it's, I have found it to be very hard when a death happens and no one's ever heard of it before to bring a baby home. And you can't be like, so your baby just died. And I just want to talk to you about this crazy concept of let's advocate for bringing the baby home from the hospital, because in that moment, they're so shocked. They can't process or shouldn't need to process this new information. And so to me, as we feed communities, normalizing the idea of, of spending time with bodies, whether it's you know, grandma who died in the hospital and bringing grandma's body home. And the more people have heard that story, it's not such a huge leap then if there's been a stillbirth, um, yeah, or a neonatal death, um, that they're not hearing it for the first time. And I think there's something really important about that because what I've seen for families. Yeah. Yeah, And yeah, go ahead. <laughs> i was just say what I've seen for families who've lost babies is, is it's this idea, and this isn't my term, that you need to say hello before you say goodbye, and that's from Elizabeth Heinemann's mm-hmm. work, called, uh, book Ghost I Belly. I was just
1: about to say, yeah, Ghost Belly is one of the best resources for learning what that looks like. I've interviewed her as well, and she's an incredible mm-hmm. um, writer and thinker yes. and speaker, and like just such a, a tremendous resource. If you don't if you haven't yet, I think all midwives should read Ghost Belly. I think it's an incredible treatise on what could happen afterwards and also what could happen. Um, and um, yeah, it's it's a fantastic, fantastic novel, which is really a memoir, which is, you know, I don't know, what do you call it?
0: <laughs> it's Definitely so gripping. You can't put it down. It's so fascinating. Fascinating Definitely. story. Yep. And that's yeah, required reading for all run. of all of the classes that I teach for yeah. midwives and just for holding space, you know, for any birth worker, that's definitely required reading for my classes.
1: Yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I think it really for the whole community. Um, we have a we have an interview uh, with her. Well, she's part of a collection of folks we talked to midwives and mothers who've lost babies at home births, and mm-hmm. we put together this um, whole uh, process on. Um, perinatal fetal demise and community-based birth and what to do and how to do it based on the people who've experienced it. And so we'll, we'll link that, um, that video to this show notes uh, so people can get those resources, but um, yeah, she was in there and and the clips of her describing what she went through was just, um, it's so moving and it's so powerful. And the other two mothers who present their stories in that Video also very powerful. Um, And what gets to happen in community-based birth is so different than what happens in the hospital. Um, And so I think midwives in community-based birth are the best position to be able to advocate for this really cultural shift. Um, Are there any states where it's not legal, where midwives can't advocate for spending more time with the baby's body?
0: So there is not a state where it is not legal to care for a body at home. Some states do have some hoops that you need to jump through where there needs to be funeral director supervision. But I I think at this time, there's like nine. And it's like New York, Connecticut. um, And there is a list on my website of all of them. I don't have them all off the top of my head. But but only but only nine states. Every other state, your right to act as your own funeral director is protected, um, which is pretty fantastic. Awesome. Um, Don't you wish
1: we had the yeah. right to act as your own midwife in some of these states? Like, you know, why why can't we get more freedom in birth when we, you know, look at it? But but that is fantastic and and a, a tremendous knowledge. So tell us about your website and your resources. What are you doing for? Uh, this movement right now, not just in your own community, but for courses and workshops and retreats. Tell us about that.
0: Yeah, so my website is Arizona Community Deathcare, azcommunitydeathcare.com, um, and you can find me through there. I have traveled, you know, other. States to teach. I do a lot of work in Utah and in Idaho, just because we're all close together. I've taught some in Santa Fe. People can definitely get me to go different places to teach. I can do things online. I am hosting um, a retreat for midwives in Sedona in March. with my friend Jade Scherer, who is a Vision Quest leader. And so this I've never done before, um, but we're trying to really hold this container for five days to learn the death care piece, to really dive into that companioning and being with grief, the creating ritual and really understanding the somatic aspect of nervous system regulation when there is a body present in the room. That's a big element of my work is understanding exactly what's happening in the nervous system when the time and space is created by the presence of the body. Um, So holding those pieces along with um, Jade's 20 years of experience in just guiding vision quests. And so really holding the tender places in midwives who have attended loss and are still bruised even though we move on. And so we're really hoping to tend both parts. Resource that broken heart. Um, Yeah, walking distance from beautiful Oak Creek, Cathedral Rock. um, I also, my other hat is catering. So beautiful um, locally grown meals and just just a really... (laughs) well-tended experience um but really the thing really going sense. back a little bit to what i hope so i hope so and then you know we'll just keep making things like that happen the piece though going back to this the individual states that i think is the most important is understanding that every community is different and what's right in your community, what's needed in my community might be really, really different. But for midwives, if I could do one thing, it would be to help midwives understand which organizations and institutions and, um, you know, bureaucrats, they need to befriend, to understand, to network with, so that when there is a loss, when there is a death, this isn't the first time we're having these conversations. So because I've been doing this work for a long time, I've worked with the ethics board at my hospital and they know I'm here and they know if there's a death, my name might come up and people are gonna be asking for bodies. And now my hospital has a protocol on how to release bodies to families because even though it was legal, if the hospital doesn't have a policy for it, it's not happening. And so right. how do we make sure that the things are in place? Yeah. It makes me think of um, the,
1: the need for midwives to go do in services with EMF, right? Is if there's like, you know, you could call them if you have an emergency, but they don't know what they're doing unless you like work together before you're in the emergency. So, you know, going and doing those in-services and showing videos and talking about cord prolapse and talking about, um, you know, what you're doing in a resuscitation and how NRP is different than CPR. Like these kinds of things is so important. Otherwise you end up with that crisis in that moment. And so I, I love this parallel of needing to go and lay the groundwork groundwork before you need it. That's just brilliant. Um, And you have a resource of who that is in your communities.
0: Yeah, and it's taken a long time to figure out who those people are and make those connections and get them to give me the time of day. Um, But that's what community building is. You stay the course, you make the connections, you keep showing up then one day those people need you and they realize that that you can help so I have friends in hospice I have friends in palliative care friends on the ethics committee at the hospital friends in labor and delivery and that's just been years and years of staying in one place setting down my roots and talking my talk walking my walk and showing up yeah that's
1: awesome Wow, what a resource you are. My god, I'm so glad we know about you and we get to share. Will you um will you tell us uh, a story? Will you tell us a little bit about um, you know, an experience that was really impactful for you working with a family who did bring a baby home and what that's like?
0: Hmm. Let me think of a good one. Hmm. <laughs> What I love to share too, is that a lot of my work ends up being that I'm not the one there. And so this will weave in, but right. So we have to be careful in these movements, right? Because it feels really great to like, oh, and then I came in and I made all this beauty and And then I split the, you know, (laughs) and really being careful to take our, you know, like the way that we tell stories. Um, I think every midwife has heard this one at some point that like our goal is that a woman tells her birth story and that we're not in it, that we did our job so well that like they forgot we were there. Um, Mm -hmm. So my favorite stories of any time a family is taking care of a body is a lot of times I've done enough education beforehand that I'm not coming to help out, that I've been, I don't love the word empowered, but that I've helped them to see what the laws are, what the rules are, what the tasks are, and then um, and then they do it themselves. So I got a call um, from a family, they were not my clients, um, and their baby had died, and, they didn't know better, so they called the authorities, and the authorities came, and the funeral director showed up and took the body away, and then they realized through their midwife that, that it was possible for them to spend time with the body. They actually lived on a big enough farm that they could bury the body on their land, um, so they called the funeral director, and they said, hey, we want our baby back, and he was like, well, I can't give you your baby back, and, you know, there was like kind of this back and forth, like, but we were told that we could. And the funeral director was like, no, it's, it's actually not legal in Arizona to um, see an unembalmed body. And so that's when I got, you know, then I, uh, okay, that's not actually true. Um, and so for me, my role, again, I think the advocacy, while it's not as fun as creating the beauty, is, is the role that I end up mm-hmm, playing. Mm-hmm. So I was, mm-hmm. yeah. I was on the phone with the funeral um, director. I was on the phone with the the state board of funeral director, the person who holds their licenses. And she actually was like, yeah, no, it's not legal for a family to see an unembalmed body. I said, okay, could you? how about I hang on and you go find that statute for me? Because I was like, you know, I, I teach a lot and it'd be really good for me to have that, that statute number. Um, so rather than telling her she was wrong, you know, one of the the amazing tactics of advocacy is to to tell them they're right and then ask them to give you the information so you could share. So she came back 10 minutes later and said, oh, actually I'm not right. That's not actually what it says. It says that the public, that you can't, you you know, have a public viewing of a body without being embalmed, like, you know, at the courthouse or something like that. So she did a quick 180 and agreed with me that of course that funeral director could not hold the family's body the baby's body and she was willing actually to call the funeral director for me and let him know that his license was actually um, in jeopardy if he was holding the body hostage and so um he quickly turned around and drove the body um back out to the family's farm where they then were able to hold um keep the baby for 30 days while they went through the process of having a family cemetery um, approved for their land. It's it's basically a 30 day process here in the rural parts of Arizona. So we were able not only to advocate for them getting their baby's body back so that she had days to hold the baby um, and just really feel like that little person was part of her family. But then the advocacy continued because it, it, freaks people out what do you mean you had the body for that long they they were able to just keep the body in the freezer which sounds shocking but if a baby if a body is held in a funeral home it's the exact same thing and got, got through all of the levels of paperwork with the county got the home cemetery approved and then they were able to have a beautiful funeral on their farm and put the baby's body in the ground where they'll be forever it was lovely. Um, yeah,
1: it's so powerful, and it is so confronting when you're not regularly in this world and talking about this. Um, and one of the things that again I love about Elizabeth Heinemann's work is she describes about the baby cooler box so that she could have it f- for multiple days, and the baby's body could be kept at that lower temperature to 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 uh, arrest the the decomposition process so that it could. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, look like her baby for longer. Um, and, um, yeah, I just think it's, it's so important for midwives to know about these resources. It might not be something that we have ever even thought about because death is so removed from the family and from the home. What are some other things that you now know that you want midwives to know about home funerals or taking the bodies home or about the whole first few weeks, like just the nitty gritty. Like, I think, um, like, um, I worked with a a family whose, um, baby was very bruised. Um, and I think they weren't prepared for that. And so that's something that I wish I had known. It's like, Mm -hmm. um, a baby who is a stillborn and goes through the birth process still sometimes, or not still, they end up bruised because they don't have the circulatory system to heal that. And so, you know what I mean? Like those are the kinds of things that I think midwives want to know
0: about. What else? Yeah. So babies are, babies' bodies are so fragile um, and pretty quickly it can go from looking like a, like their baby to not looking like their baby Um, Mm -hmm. something that's Mm -hmm. really powerful to remember is that it's not just about sight but it's about the feeling and it's about the weight and so it's okay to Mm. shroud a baby and cover their face and maybe just the hand is out Um, really allowing like whichever part of the body still looks best to maybe the feet still look well, but the, but the face, you know, because of the trauma of birth and moving through the bones. And so you, you move the bait, you know, you shroud the baby, you know, which basically is like a swaddle blanket for that size, but maybe you leave the little feet out. And so, you know, so they have a really, um, a lasting memory of just holding those little toes, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. and having that creativity to work with, um, with what works you know with what works for that family some people um can handle seeing that and to really just normalize that it's okay if it's the right person mm-hmm. um you know to me it was radical the first time i heard somebody person. say this and then i had to integrate it but like you it's okay to see decomposition it's okay that doesn't mean it's okay for everyone but to just even start to feel into the possibility that that's not wrong, that that's not just because there's a bruise or there's a tear in their skin, um, that is part of the truth. And so how do we hold someone through the challenge of that rather than again, needing to make it pretty, needing to fix it? Um, for some people that is what's needed and and it's okay to have a baby embalmed and then bring them home for 3 days that is absolutely an option it will change things you know there's a little bit of a chemically feel when you kiss them but if somebody really wants that perfect visual an embalming is is absolutely a viable option and then the complete other end of the spectrum is the person who says My baby went through this. My baby is going through this. And for me, I want to bear witness to exactly what the truth of it is. And then everywhere in between. Um, Mm -hmm. You know, we, we talk about that sometimes not in the context of babies, but like car accidents, you know, and somebody could have had some real physical trauma, an adult. and you still wanna bring their body home and have that presence. Mm -hmm. And so you work again Mm -hmm. with creative draping. You identify like we always say, who's the person in your community who can bear to see the, the body with some trauma and do some cleaning up and do some fixing and do some draping and then inviting in the other people who maybe want a little bit less of a visual. Normalizing the experience, for for me is part of it, and that that doesn't need to be where everybody is at.
1: Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's uh, yeah, beautiful truth. I I mean, you know, if we're if we're going going to look at at birth in all of its messy glory, uh, we can look at death the same way. It's mm-hmm. really quite. Quite revolutionary and also totally, you know, banal
0: as well. <laughs> I mean, right? There's no the reason spectrum of human experience. There's no reason that it shouldn't just be a part of it. You know, just like we don't want to go yeah. into room. Well, anymore. we've just
1: yeah, we've lived in this culture now that just that numbs and mutes and uh, hides and. You know, for for decades now, yeah, um, image is the is the driver. Um, and and we are we are heroing everyone around us, trying to protect everyone around us. But that protection ends up robbing them of the experience,
0: yes. And I think that that's a big element in the funeral industry. I have a lot of friends who are funeral directors and even, you know, the woman on the phone with with the baby story, she's like, Oh, well, I just wouldn't want them to see that. I just wouldn't want that to be their last memory. You know, the baby's skin. And it's like, okay, but that's not your choice to make for them. And and it's you know like thinking about the way that birth used to be. It's like you go in the room and you get wheeled back out, all tidied up with your makeup on, and nobody saw you know <laughs> what you just went through because you went in with your makeup on and you came out with your makeup on. And there's um, a little bundle, uh-huh. a wrapped up bundle, like ta-da, mm-hmm. the stork brought it. Yeah, so. and we do the same yeah. thing with death. It's like somebody dies, you know, within the mm-hmm. hour, the funeral director whisks them away. The next time you see the body is all tidy in their casket. And everybody just goes about makeup and and jewelry,
1: whatever. Yeah,
0: and so I yeah, I know it's
1: it's a profound reclaiming, Mm
0: -hmm. Mm -hmm. and I really, you know, what it can do for our nervous systems to have the time to assimilate the new truth is powerful. So you can have the body at home, sit with the body leave and go for a walk, make a meal, you know, play catch with the dog, then come back in and read poetry and play your guitar alongside the dead body. And then it feels overwhelming and our systems get really activated. And then you go for a walk and you eat some food and you take a nap. And, you know, sometimes when there's a death, you know, the hospital. oh, you have two hours, you know, you can stay here. And then there's all of a sudden this frantic, like, um, scarcity of time, people, everybody wants a few minutes alone, and I need to go pee, but I'm afraid I'm going to leave. And then eh, they're going to take the body away if nobody's in. like, mm, that, that angsty feeling of needing to quick, 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 make something of the moment, and feel the right things. And, do the right things at the right moment in this compressed amount of time but when we bring a body home whether it's a baby or a grandma and spend three days for example the unraveling happens the natural ceremonies and rituals that occur in reaction to rather than to try to make a feeling but You have times to feel the feeling, notice what the feeling is asking for and then meet it and then notice it change and then meet it again. We don't get that when the funeral is scheduled for, you know, three o'clock on Thursday and we got to get in our stockings and put our makeup on and show up. Like I want to grieve in my pajamas. Yeah. I need a break to take a walk and I want to
1: sleep and then wake up and figure it out tomorrow. Yes, And notice, and notice that it's different. And notice that it's different, that it's an integration process. It's making me think of the difference between natural contractions and oxytocin and pitocin induction. Like you need the pause. You need the break. You need the breath. There needs to be a space between the pain. Yeah. And if it's that rushed, pressured, other people's timelines, image focus culture, you don't have the break between, or have the space between the pain, the contraction mm-hmm. pain. Yeah. I the love that. Pain. I've never,
0: I've never put that together like that. I appreciate that.
1: Mm. Yeah. Well, you've just filled up my heart. Uh, thank you so much, Danny. i just, I'm really grateful to you to be not only willing to speak with us, but just in your life, be willing to be an advocate and sit in the threshold like
0: this. My gosh. Yeah. And we're all grateful. It's such a gift to be with you. I will say that you can find me on my website, my phone number's Mm -hmm. there. Like Mm -hmm. I've had gotten phone calls from other states of people saying like, you know, I know I took your class and this is what you said and now the hospice nurse is saying I have to call the funeral director. Can you talk to her? Mm-hmm. And I'm on the phone with the hospice nurse like in some random state. In some yeah. random state. Oh. So just yeah. I'm just I'm yeah. here. I can plug you in with the people in your state like reach out.
1: I'm here. Yeah. Beautiful. Beautiful. And they can find out more information about your workshop in March for people that are still trying to heal their heart or discover this process.
0: Definitely. And
1: that's on your website, Community, Community. Okay. azcommunitydeathcare.org. We'll put, we'll link it in the show notes as well. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Danny, And I um, I can't wait to see what else is a future project and plan. And we're hoping to attract you to speak at this year's Midwifery Wisdom Conference and all kinds that. of things. I can't wait to share you far and wide.
0: <laughs> yes. Well, Just, I
1: can't wait to be in the same room with you and have a glass of wine. <laughs> yeah. Someday soon, right? We're yeah. going to make this happen. Perfect. Lots of love, my friend. It's so fantastic. Thank
0: you again. Thank you so Take much. Take good
1: care of yourself.
0: You too you <laughs>